This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 33. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, you can turn there. It starts on page 463 of the Bibles in your rows and is printed in your order of worship if you'd like to follow along as I read. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Zhang, one of the pastors here. It was a pretty empty first service, and I thought everyone's on vacation. Turns out everyone's on vacation to the second service. So, um, you know, we're going through the Psalms and looking at how God's people have prayed through different seasons of life. And today we come to Psalm 33. It's a psalm without a title, no indication of who wrote it, on what occasion was it written, or what kind of psalm it is. So I thought I would just call this psalm, Psalm 33, the dating psalm. The dating psalm. Now, why? So see, when you're dating, you spend, you spend quite a bit of time getting to know the, the other person, right? What he or she is like, personality, character traits, temperament. And you spend quite a bit of time getting to know yourself. Do you trust and like this person? What's your relationship with this person? And the end, at the end of the day, if everything goes well, if you're a man, you pop the question. 
You ask the lady to marry you. That's usually how it goes. Psalm 33 has 22 verses. The psalmist addresses his own soul and exalts his people. He takes an inventory of God's attributes. He examines his own relationship with God. And in the end, in the last verse, the only time he addresses God personally, he pops the question. He asks, "Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you." Now imagine if you get a chance to get to know God more. You get to reflect on God's power as your judge, your creator, and your ruler. What will you think of Him? Would He appear too strict, too authoritarian, too angry, too scary? Would you ask Him to remain with you forever? The Psalm tells us the answer should be yes. So today I would like to look at the Psalm with you backward. You start at the end and go to the beginning to explore how we can relate to God like the person who wrote the Psalm. So first, the psalm ends in a place of deep trust. The psalmist trusts the Lord. There's a trust that's very personal to him and his people. In the last three verses, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. Notice how many times he used the word "our." Our soul waits. Our heart is glad in Him. Is our help and our shield. God is personal to Him. He has experienced God personally. He will wait for the Lord. Nothing else will meet His desires. You know, when you go out and buy a phone or a car or whatever, you rarely buy the first thing you touch, right? You look through all the options. You wait for the thing that satisfies all your needs. The psalmist has examined all the options. And he declared that God is worth the wait, because God is what He ultimately needs. And look at all the things He rejects along the way. Verses 16 and 17: The king is not saved by his great army; a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now, when things are bad, when chips go down, it makes sense. For a king to trust in his armies, right? Because at the end of the day, military power is what makes a king great. It makes sense for a warrior to trust in his strength because it's his strength that makes him a great warrior. It makes sense to depend on the great might of a warhorse because the great might of the warhorse is what makes him dependable. What makes sense for us to trust in may not be what ultimately saves. That's why the psalmist chooses to wait, and of course. These are just some of the examples of psalmist names. We could easily make our own list. It makes sense for a great scholar to trust in her intelligence. It makes sense for the wealthy to trust in their wealth. It makes sense for the influencers to trust, you know, whatever skills that make them popular on social media. But what makes sense for us to trust in may not be what ultimately saves. That's why many of us are still waiting for the next big thing. And trusting in all these things. It's not natural. It makes sense, but it's not natural. In other words, these trusts have to be cultivated. We have to be trained to trust them. You know, great king's kingdom is not built overnight. No one's born a warrior. A horse has to be trained. We cultivate the things we trust in, and we grow in our dependence 
on them. So I was watching one of my favorite movies last week, The Devil Wears Prada. I sense some of you judging me. Don't judge. <laughs> Came out like 15 years ago. It follows this young, wide-eyed, idealistic journalist na- named Andy, played by Anne Hathaway. She moved to New York City hoping to find a job as a writer for a magazine. And she landed a job working as the personal assistant to the chief editor of a powerful fashion magazine. And Andy hated her job. She didn't care about fashion. It wasn't real journalism. She constantly made fun of the models and the fashion designers she worked with. But she wanted to prove to people that she could do the work. So she started to dress more fashionably. Then she started to mix with the people that she didn't like. And then she decided to get ahead by putting other people down. And she grew to depend on these things to save her career. She slowly drifts into being someone she used to hate. And at every turn, she kept making the excuse, I didn't have a choice, I didn't have a choice, I didn't have a choice. And at every turn, people would say to her, you chose. You chose. You don't sell your soul to the devil overnight or in one bet. You may not even like the thing that you trust in, but... Give enough time and effort, you may begin to trust in the things that you work hard to excel at. When I first saw this movie, I was working in a big corporate law firm in D.C. as a paralegal. And I hated my job. I didn't care about the law. I didn't like my hours. I didn't see a whole lot of purpose in what I was doing. But after three years in the firm, I thought it was a big deal. Because I made it. I've gone through it. It was time for me to train my replacement, I thought to myself, this guy can do the work. He's not good enough. He doesn't know what it's like to work for these people. And those of you who have gone through medical residency or law school or any kind of hazing, you may know this feeling. You are somebody because you made it through. Now let me be clear. It's not wrong to excel at something. It's not wrong to be good at your job. But it's an entirely different category to begin trusting in something to save you simply because you're good at it. And how do we avoid falling into that trap? And we look at the psalm. The psalmist says he waits for the Lord. God is ultimately what he trusts in. Not armies, not strength, not horses, but God himself. He knows in his soul the deepest part of his being, in his bones, that God is what would deliver him from death and keep him alive in famine. He waits for the Lord with hope. God is his joy and happiness. God is his protection, love, and hope. There's firmness in that conviction. And how do we trust God like that? How do we get what the psalmist has? We have to know God's power. He is so far beyond what you and I could ever do in our lives. The psalm describes God's power in three different areas. God's power as the ruler, God's power as the creator, God's power as the judge. God's power as the ruler, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. 
Now, these verses co- contrast for us how our plans stack up against God's plans. The counsel of the nations come to nothing. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Our plans are frustrated. His plans are established for generations. Now, what's the difference between our plan and God's plan? Power. He has the power to frustrate our plans and establish His. Imagine it's Friday afternoon. You were in your office. You were looking forward to the weekend, sleeping in tomorrow morning, having a cup of coffee and doing some nice reading, spending some time with your kids in the afternoon, going on a date with your spouse in the evening. And then your phone rings. It's your boss. And he says you have to work overtime tomorrow. What do you end up doing tomorrow? You work overtime tomorrow. Now, what's the difference between your plan and your boss's plan? Power. He has the power to make you come to work tomorrow. God rules not only over our individual plans, but he has power to rule over all of our plans, all of human plans. He brings the councils of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, nations and peoples. These are exclusive, all-inclusive terms in the Old Testament. And yet God is personal. He knows you, and he sees everything that you do. Verses 13 and 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. He rules over you all. He knows all of you personally. Now, this is a story in the Gospel of John where the disciple Nathaniel meets Jesus for the first time. Nathaniel was a bit skeptical of Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But when he meets Jesus, Jesus immediately knows who Nathaniel is. Nathaniel was amazed. And how do you know me? And Jesus says, Before Philip calls you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Now we don't know what happened under the fig tree. The Gospel of John didn't tell us. John probably didn't even know. But Jesus knew. Jesus was there. And immediately, Nathaniel responded, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Imagine moments when you felt most alone when you were under your fig trees, when you felt like no one was there to see you, when you felt sad or left out or helpless, and you thought you were completely alone. But God was there all along. He knows you. And do you know how well God knows you? The psalm says not only that God knows your heart in those moments, He created your heart. And that comes to the second power the psalmist describes here in the psalm. God's power is the creator. Verses 6, 7, and 9. By the power of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God not only created the world, he created with ease. Now, I have trouble telling my son what to do. But God spoke, and the world was made. And he could easily bottle up all the waters of the sea in a jar, just like you and, I, you and I filled up a bottle. It was effortless. If we want to know the power of God's creation, you know, just step outside. 
I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but there are these things called cicadas. You know, they live underground for like 17 years, using little tiny little straws to drink from the trees. And somehow, deep underground, they know 17 years have gone by, and they all emerge at the same time. It's like the world's biggest group date. <laughs> and the males make noise to attract their female mates. And they sing in unison. If you stand next to a tree long enough, you notice they don't just, it's not one long, continuous, loud buzz. It comes in waves, like the oceans on the beach. You know what's the most wonderful thing about these billions and billions of cicadas? They have the good sense to not hang out on any of the trees in my yard. And you may be asking, you know, can you use a less gross example, Pastor Ryan? My answer is, of course not, because this is what we're all suffering through right now. But I'm sure you don't need another example. We all have experienced God's wonders in creation. We have all had our breath taken away by something beautiful. John Calvin wrote, There's no spot in the universe in which you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. Even in cicadas, we can see the wonderful power of God's creation. Lastly, the psalm talks about God's power as the judge. Verses 4 to 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. But there's a sense of justice that's inescapable in human society. It can be twisted, like the Chinese authorities who persecute Christians. But some still have a twisted belief that they're doing the right thing. There's a division of right and wrong in every human heart. And more than just in our hearts, we want something powerful, someone powerful on our side. And every time someone was driving recklessly on the road or cut me off on the street, I immediately wish there's a cop right there to catch them. Because we all want bad people to be caught. We want justice to be restored, even though we don't agree on what justice looks like. All of that reflects our desire for a perfect judge, someone who can see it all and knows it all. In our own life experiences, we have all sensed God's power as the ruler, the creator, and the judge. We'll see his sovereignty and how he orchestrates the details of history. We'll see the wonders of nature. We see our desires for justice. The Dutch theologian Herman Baving says, Humans, in the course of a normal development, arrive at a certain knowledge of God without compulsion or effort. But we really get to know God by his revelation in scriptures. Again, Baving writes, Scripture speaks not in the language of logic, but the language of witness, not appealing to the reasoning intellect, but to the human heart and conscience, to the entire rational and moral consciousness of humans. It is never without power and influence. In other words, the scripture teaches us in a clearer way something that we already resonate with. The Bible describes God's power as a creator in Genesis. He frustrates the evil, of, the evil plans of Joseph's brothers, and brought, evil to, brought, brought Joseph to glory, and thereby saving the lives of many people. They exact justice and vengeance on the Egyptians. He punished the sins of the Israelites and judges, 
punished the sins of King Saul and King David. And each page of the Bible bears witness to God's power. So back to our original question at the beginning of the sermon. Do you want this type of power in your life? Because when you consider God's power as a ruler, a creator, and a judge, he may become even more oppressive to you, more frightening to you, especially as a ruler and a judge, right? But God goes further than just telling us about his power in Scripture. It became even more personal than that. The beginning of Hebrews says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And you know what the true power of God looks like? It looks like this. I'm on the cross. God frustrates the plans of evil men by using the unjust crucifixion of his Son to save his people. On the cross, the Creator uses his power to bring forth his kingdom. He raises Jesus from the dead and as the first fruit of the new creation. And on the cross, the judge placed all the punishment that we deserve on the shoulder of Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness is given to us for free so that we can be saved from his wrath. The Apostle Paul writes, For the word of the cross is a folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The psalmist sees the power from scriptures and wants God to be near him. How much more so for us? When we have seen how God used his power to save us on the cross. You, know, you expect God to use his power to make you miserable. And Tim Keller says, you really believe that all along in the gospel, you look into the heart of God expecting to see the frown of an enemy. And instead, you see the tears and smile of a friend. So then how do we connect with a God like that? We come back to the psalm. The psalm says, we praise him. We praise him. Verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. When we know God's power as the judge, creator, and ruler, we respond in praise. Notice the psalm says, praise befits the upright. It's fitting to the upright to praise him. You know, if I'm declared upright, if someone pronounced me righteous, I want you all to praise me. But the psalm says, it's our duty for the upright to praise God. West Minister Catechism, question number one. What's the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to pr- enjoy Him forever. The praise is the proper way to relate to God. The psalm teaches us how to praise. Verses 2 and 3. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That means praise has to be, have to be heard. It's loud and noticeable. People can tell we are praising God, not just here on church on Sunday mornings, but privately at home every day of your life. Also means praise is beautiful, with melody, with instruments, with skills. If your excuse is that you can't sing, then go practice. Take some lessons. Sing in your showers. 
because God deserves our best effort. Or find some other creative channels to praise Him. Make art, dance, make poetry. Sometimes we may think that we have done our part if you just listen to some worship songs. But we're just passive consumers. We need to sing along. Praise has to come from us. Keep a few songbooks at home or hymnals. Use it frequently. If you don't know how to praise Him in good days, we're unlikely to do it in bad days. Praise is a habit. If we don't praise God when we're healthy, we're unlikely to start when we have cancer. If we don't thank Him for what we have, we're unlikely to start when it's all taken away. If we don't praise Him when we're free, we won't praise Him like Paul and Silas in prison. And lastly, praise takes time. It takes time to reflect on God's power and respond in praise. And that's why a New Cities Prayer and Reading podcast We don't just give you the readings. We ask you to reflect on the question and sing at the end. And here's the thing. If it's all possible, by all means, do not do devotions on your phones. Do not do devotions on your phone. I know what it's like. It's convenient. But you read a passage, then ding! You know, with a few movements of your finger, you're now on Facebook or you're texting with a friend, or you're replying to an email. You don't just stare in the Grand Canyon the next moment you're back in your office working. You don't listen to a Beethoven symphony in the music hall, and then suddenly you're on social media looking at someone's broken toe. Power and beauty have to be processed. You listen, you reflect, you applaud, you praise, and transforms you. And it takes time, and God deserves your time. And you may think of some objections. I can think of two right now. You don't want to act like a religious nut. When I was in seminary, that's grad school for pastors, there was a student who was in her 50s, and everywhere she goes, she would go around singing. And one day she saw me walking down the hall, and she said to me, Are you praising Jesus? And I thought, what a weirdo. (laughs) Now I'm here to study theology. I'm thinking about life's biggest questions. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm not going to walk around and sing. You know what? There's nothing more sophisticated than getting to know God's power in your heart. And that only comes through praise. Have you ever felt like you know the right doctrines? but you just don't feel it. You know all the things in your minds, but it's just not in your heart. You know, we, we may experience that a lot as Presbyterians, right? How do we make it true to our heart as well? We praise Him. We take what we know in our minds, we process in our hearts, and it comes back out as praise. We don't fully know God until we praise Him. But Paul writes in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is not just practical suggestions. Paul's describing what singing and praises are doing. It's how the word of Christ dwelt in us richly. And here may be another objection, especially from our skeptic friends. Isn't this just circular reasoning? 
We praise God, therefore we trust Him and know Him more. We know and trust Him more, therefore we praise Him more. It's like we're just fooling ourselves. And to that I say, yes, it is circular reasoning. But so is everything else. The king praises the great army, therefore he trusts in his army. The warrior, like Goliath, boasts in his strength, therefore he trusts in his strength to defeat his enemies. We boast in science and technology. We put up billboards around the city, therefore in science lives hope. But did any of these things you boast in deliver you from death? Did it ever come down from heaven to dwell with you? Did it go to the cross to die for you? Did it ever rise from the dead to give you hope for resurrection? Because this is what my God did for me, and I will praise Him. So this morning, we have been looking through Psalm 33 backwards and to explore how we can relate to God like this person who wrote the psalm. Finally, let me flip it back, and here's what it teaches us. Praise God because he is the powerful creator, ruler, and judge. And he deploys his power to be your savior. And as you praise him, you will know and trust in him even more. And his steadfast love will be upon you as you hope in him. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your power for the way that you reveal yourself to us in your words, but more so in how you came to us to die for us on the cross. And Apostle Paul writes, all things work together for good for those who love you. And we love you and we know that you work all things together for our good. So help us to praise you. Not just know these things in our minds, but know them in our hearts and come out to praise you every day of our life. And let that Help us to dwell in this dark and and sinful world that we may praise you and that our praise be a light to the people around us. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcityc.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.